afternoon. This is week four in our lesson series, our video lesson series, and uh, uh, talking about the gospel according to Jesus. Uh, today's lesson is going to be uh, something that is part of the gospel, obviously, uh, but some people might not consider it good news because the title of today's lesson is that he, meaning Jesus, condemns a hardened heart. So before we get started, let me go ahead and open with prayer and then we'll get with it. Heavenly Father, as we look forward to the gradual lifting of all of the restrictions that have been imposed in the last couple of months, uh, we, we certainly rejoice in the freedoms that we've too long taken for granted. We thank you, Father, that through your mercy, uh, this virus seems to be subsiding and that fewer people are being affected by it. And yet, Father, we know that uh, these periods of reprieve are transitory in nature and that things could change at any moment. We pray for your mercy and your grace to continue to be mindful of your sovereignty in these events and that our diligence in prayer are essential elements of that mercy and grace. But this afternoon, Father, we especially and humbly pray that you would look with mercy on those whose increasing age and years bring them in, into isolation and distress or weakness. We ask that you would provide for them homes of dignity and peace ask that you would give them understanding helpers and the willingness to accept help. And as their strength continues to diminish, we ask that you would increase their faith and their assurance of your love for them. And we pray these things in the precious name of your Son, who died for our sins so that we might live eternally in your kingdom. Amen. All right. Number four. He condemned the hardened heart. The time, uh, the, the context for today is about, uh, especially with this, this first uh, scripture reading, is about A.D. 56. Uh, the time, of course, is a little bit before that, when the, uh, Paul was making his second missionary journey, along with his entourage, and he stopped in Corinth uh, to set up a church there. Uh, the records show that Paul stayed in Corinth about three months preaching, teaching, and trying to establish the framework for the church there in that uh, uh, very large uh, city, uh, but a very corrupt city. Paul left after about three months, and he went on to Ephesus and, and went on and continued his missionary journey. About five years later, Paul received word that the church in Corinth had, uh, to, to coin a phrase, had gone to heck. And so he was moved to write a letter to the church. And part of that letter I want, to, I want to use as the scripture this morning for the first, at least for the first part of this lesson. It's 1 Corinthians, if you would, 3.3. 3. If you have our Bibles, please turn there. I'm going to start reading in the first verse. The Apostle Paul says, and he, he comes now and, and he's, He's trying to address all of the problems that are going on in the church there. And those problems included different factions within the church, not unlike the church today. Uh, lawsuits of, of one, one member suing another member. Uh, certainly there was gross immorality. There was uh, questionable practices, spiritual practices going on. There was an abuse of the communion uh, service. There was uh, spiritual gifts and arguments about who, who had spiritual gifts and who did not. Uh, and Paul is going to try and address all of those in this particular letter. 
Now, five years, five years had gone by. Uh, Paul did not himself want to go back to Corinth. As a matter of fact, uh, there are some, some commentators um, uh, have, have at least opined that probably he was too worked up over what was going on there to go back and deal with them face to face. And he thought it would be a better uh, idea just to write them a letter and have one of his uh, colleagues, who happened to be Titus, to take the letter back. So I'm in chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when you one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Paulus, and are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollo? Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. So what Paul is doing, he's taking them to task. Uh, and, and certainly in Paul's mind, after his going and establishing the church, and establishing the framework for the maintenance of that church, he thought that five years later they would have been a well-established and, and, if you will, doing things the right way. Obviously, they were, they were not. He addresses them as carnal Christians, and I'm sure there's no one in this class who has not heard that expression before, especially if you grew up in a Baptist church, which many of us did. Uh, there, there was always talk about being carnal Christians. And so it, it sort of begs the question, did Paul intend that there be two dis, a, a distinction between Christians? Were there the committed Christians and then there was the carnal Christians? One of the things that is, is worth considering here is that, is that Paul did not see them as being different. He saw them as being the same because they were not living in what he would call or what he uh, referred to as a static disobedience. They were, they were trying to do the right thing, but their nature led them to do many things wrongly. So they weren't living in static disobedience. They hadn't turned completely away from God, nor were they lacking in any gift. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, if you turn back over a couple of pages, he says, <clears throat> uh, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, he says, even as I preached the gospel to you and the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, meaning that you accepted it, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, I came, I preached the gospel, you accepted the gospel, and your testimony said that you did. And so you weren't lacking because you accepted the gospel, the Holy Spirit was within you, and you did not lack in any gifts. So you not, not only were not living in static disobedience, but you had the gifts to be more Christ-like, but were not. But the thing that was a problem for you is that you had taken your eyes off of Christ. And so, and he talks about that in verse 4 or 5 where he talks about the, the factions and talking about the, the, the teachers, uh, Apollos and, and uh, uh, I'm Paul and another, I'm Apollos, are you not carnal? Uh, and, and so the people there had started a little contest and these little enclaves or cliques, if you will, some of who thought Paul was the the cat's meow, and others who thought this other uh, minister there, Apollos, was, was the one that they should be following. And so Paul is saying, you, you're not supposed to be following me. You're supposed to have your eyes only on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul sees that as one of the problems or one of the principal problems is they had. I, I think 
that all of us would agree to, to at least some extent that one of the problems that we have in the modern or contemporary evangelical church is that we are too often uh, eager to accommodate the different factions within the church. Uh, people who advocate for, uh, whether, and there are all kinds of things which we obviously we argue about. Uh, here we argue, there they argue, every church has different factions within it and they argue about different things. There was a guy by the name of Charles Ryrie, even as far back as 1969, who wrote a book called Balancing the Christian Life. And one of the premises of that book was is that there needs to be some balance in Christian life. If, if the expectation was is that we all ought to be committed Christians and that we all ought to be living according to, uh, to, to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and doing all of the things that we should be, his question was, where is there room for those other Christians, those babes in Christ, those carnal Christians, as Paul describes them? He's saying if the bar is set so high, uh, who in fact could ever meet the requirements? If only the committee will say, where do the carnal Christians fit into that? Another, another question, of course, is that uh, as we live and walk in, in, in Christ, uh, we are, I'm sure that we all have asked ourselves at some point in time, you know, what is, we may not use the, the same words, what is the spiritual red pill for us? A uh, red pill is, a, is, a, is an expression you see a lot in today's, especially in the political environment. Uh, you know, a red pill is, uh, is described as something that, that changes your way of thinking about something. What, what is the red pill that would change a Democrat to a Republican or a Republican to a Democrat? What is that event? What is that that uh, bit of truth, what is that uh, event that might take place that might change one person from a, point, a particular point of view to another uh, point of view. And so I, I think as Christians, we've all been in our spiritual walk in that place where we wonder, you know, and, and we're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God, as God's word tells us. And, and so we, we always, especially as we get older, but certainly it's not exclusive right, of, if you will, of the the agent, is that we all wonder, what is that spiritual red pill? How far do we go before we need to stop and, and do a little self-reflection about what our Christian life is like? And do we need to, uh, to make changes? Uh, and what should those changes entail? So it's a, it's a common question, and certainly for a believer it's a common question, uh, that we, we ask ourselves, Sometimes it spurs us to make changes in our life. Sometimes, perhaps, it does not. Of course, we all have heard, again, growing up, we've all heard this expression, once saved, always saved. Uh, that is a, it's a doctrine of the preservation, of preservation of, of the saints, if you will, uh, that presumes that the confession of faith that we make when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a sincere confession, and it is true to be uh, to that confession as we try to live our lives, we try to be true to that. Now, the Bible explains to us what genuine faith is. Uh, over in Matthew 10 and also in, in 2 Timothy 2.12, they say essentially the same thing. Matthew 10 says, uh, 33, whoever denies me before me and him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So if you look at that, you know, in the, in the uh, I guess in plain language, Jesus is saying that the red pill is denial. If you deny me, I will deny you. And so 
that for us gives us a uh, certainly a, a, a point where we never want to go beyond that point. We never want to be placed in the position or never have to, to, to be uh, found having denied our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like Peter, uh, after the crucifixion of Christ, when Peter was tried, uh, was asked, was he one of the, the members of Christ's group? And he denied Christ three times. Uh, and Christ had predicted that he would. But we never want to be in that particular position. We want to make sure that we don't, you know, go that far. For us as Christians, there is this thing called once saved, always saved, or the preservation of the saints. Uh, Matthew, again, Matthew 33 and 2 Timothy talk about that. Uh, and the other thing is, is that, that Christ considers, considers us to be moral agents. We are in the, in the, in the view of, of uh, Scripture. We are moral agents who once we have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and we become Christians, uh, our, our preservation, if you will, in the faith is through the maintenance and the preservation of our spiritual lives on a daily, a daily basis. Now, I, I certainly would be the first to admit that most of us are not attending to our spiritual lives on a daily basis. Uh, certainly, it would, be, it would be nice if we all did. The world would be a better place. Uh, even for non-believers, it would be a better place if Christians were living out the Christ-like life every day. But that's how Christ sees us as moral agents who preserve our position in his kingdom through the maintenance and preservation of our faith, our spiritual lives, or our faith in Christ. 1 John 2.19, if, again, if you have your Bibles, you could flip over there. This scripture talks about those people who do not. Uh, First John, John is talking about those people who used to be a part of, uh, of the believers, of the church of believers. Verse 18, and I'll start there. It says, little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. You know, again, it's, it's that, what, what John is trying to, I guess, paint a, a picture of is that, that the, the last hour is coming. Things, bad things are happening. There are many antichrists, those who are against Christ, those who are preaching another gospel, those who are spreading lies and deceit and, and all kinds of other things, and that there are people of, of, the, of the, the believers, that band of believers, if you will, in the first century, some of whom are leaving. It's almost like, uh, you know, we have experienced in different times in, in our life where circumstances and events have come along which have tested the spiritual metal of particular individuals or perhaps of the church itself. I, I know right now you, we might even look upon um, what's going on right now with, with all of the sequestering uh, where we're, we're, we're supposed to be staying at home, sheltering in place, all uh, venues which, which normally have lots of people, churches being among those, have been told that they should sort of cease and desist, that they can't have regular services, etc., etc. Sometimes uh, those kinds of edicts, those kinds of restrictions will push people to the point where uh, they'll say, well, you know, if, if we can 
not having a regular church and, and everybody seems to be okay with that, well, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to go to church. Maybe I can watch church on television or maybe I can do something else or, or better yet, I've been doing other things on Sunday and I haven't missed going to church at all. And so those are things where the, the, uh, in, in this particular John, uh, where John is saying, we, we used to have this body of believers around us, but the, we're, it's in the last days now, and, and people are leaving the church. And he goes on to say, they're leaving because of the fact that they were never of us. And so that's one of the things that we need to, uh, to think about, is how easily will we be persuaded or how difficult would it be to persuade us to leave? I want to talk about now one of the, uh, probably one of the most well-known, if you will, in Scripture, uh, betrayals that takes place of someone who was not committed, who was not a genuine believer, and who, as the, as the, uh, the title of today's lesson goes, uh, was condemned by his hardened heart. That, of course, would be, uh, if you look in... in John 13, we're going to be talking about the apostle Judas, or the disciple Judas. Not an apostle, but a disciple. So let's, let's look, if you will, in John 13. In the 18th verse, I'm going to read all the verses, and then we'll talk specifically about some of them. In the 18th verse, Jesus is speaking here, and he's speaking to his disciples who have gathered for the Last Supper. And he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I'm going to say some things Jesus is saying, but it doesn't apply to everybody here. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he in quotes, he's quoting the Old Testament here. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, and I am who I told you I was, because what I have said will come true. 20th verse, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And obviously, if they do not receive Christ, they do not receive him who sent Christ. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I want to start, stop right there. I, it, it, this is an interesting verse in the, the uh, 21st verse. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. You know, I, I, I can't possibly imagine what, what Jesus might have been feeling at that time, and, and certainly there are, are many people who speculate why he was troubled in spirit. It, it's hard to even imagine Jesus' spirit being troubled, but obviously, it's, as the scripture points out, he was troubled by what was going to take place. He knew exactly what was going to transpire. He knew exactly the sequence of events. He knew the timetable. He knew all of the code words and the signals that were going to take place. But yet, knowing all those things, he still was troubled in spirit. Again, I, I don't think that, that anybody really understands the, the depth of which that troubling happened for him. Uh, but I, but I, I know that each of you, uh, w without exception, there's every one of you who, 
who watches this videotape, every one of you who sits in a Sunday school class or who has professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, at some point in time in your life, you have been troubled in spirit. Uh, you've been troubled in spirit perhaps by your own actions or you've been troubled in spirit by the actions of others, but you have been troubled in spirit and you know what an uncomfortable feeling that is. You, you have this sense of urgency about doing something to get that, that uneasiness out of your soul, out of your body. And so uh, it, it's an uncomfortable feeling. But Jesus was troubled in spirit. One of the commentators which I sort of lean toward is that he was troubled in spirit because he knew the consequences of what Judas was going to do was going to put him on the outside forever. There was no going back for Judas. He was dead set on the, on the action, the course of action that he had chosen, and he was going to follow through with that, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus knew right then that he was condemned to hell forever. And so that troubled him in spirit. Of course, the disciples in verse 22, the disciples themselves were also troubled in spirit. As they, as they whispered to one another, could it be me? Same, same for, for each of us. We Sometimes as, as we listen to sermons or as we uh, participate in the work in, of, of the church or as, even as we try to live Christian lives, as that we get troubled in spirit, sometimes it comes as a result of seeing what, happened, what happens to other people. And it troubles our spirit because we wonder, could it happen to us just like it did to the disciples here? They were concerned that they may be who Jesus was talking about. And so, of course, there was also Judas in verses 25 through 27. You'll see in those other, the, the verses 22 there where the disciples looked at one another and they were perplexed about whom he spoke. And now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him and said, you can just see him now. As he, uh, he's, he's whispering or trying to catch his eye and to ask him who it is, ask him who it is. And Jesus, and so leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Who, who is this that you're talking about? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas went out into the night. Now, there were, no, there were only two people or three people in the room that knew uh, then who was going to betray Jesus. The two disciples, one of the disciples obviously had not had a, an opportunity to, to, to speak to the one who laid next to Jesus, who was John. And so, but, but at most there were three people in the room. There were Jesus and the two disciples. Nobody else in the room had an inkling as to who was going to be the person to betray him, and certainly would not have, if they were asked to choose, they probably would have pointed to somebody else. Well, maybe it's Thomas, or maybe it's some one of the other disciples, perhaps even Peter. Probably, the, if, if not the last one, probably one of the latter ones would have been Judas, because Judas was a very committed uh, keeper of the money. Uh, he did all kinds of, uh, if you will, he was the event manager. Uh, so Judas was, he, he gave every indication that he was a loyal committed disciple but Jesus knew otherwise John 17 12 talks about what a committed disciple is like
This is Jesus, and, and this is list, talking about in John 17 again. And I've said, I've said this so many times, and I'm sure most of you who, who hear me say it uh, probably are tired of hearing it. My favorite chapter in the entire Bible is John 17, because it is, it is Jesus and his communion with the Father. Verse 12 is, is certainly a, the most reassuring verse of, of chapter 17. He says, while I was with them in the world, speaking to Jesus as a part of, I mean, speaking to God as a part of his prayer to the Father. He's talking about those who have committed themselves to him. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, that, that ought to be a very reassuring words to any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If, you're, if your profession was true and you have remained uh, committed to Jesus and that you've tried to maintain your spiritual life uh, at, at the highest level you possibly could, given your nature, then, then you are, are committed and Jesus will preserve you to the end. You have eternal security. But then there are those who are uncommitted. These are people who are like, like Judas, if you will, who have got their eye on something else. Ian Murphy, who wrote, who wrote a book called Evangelism Divided, Ian Murphy described these people in his work as saying, these are people who are, at, at their very core, are worldly people. And worldly people, as he defined them, is departing from God. It's a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. And it climbs, declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. It adopts idols and is at war with God. And I, I think that if we, you, you took just a few minutes and you read again the, the gospel and, and about Judas and what Judas did, uh, you, you would see that uh, and understood exactly what brought Judas to the point that he was at in terms of his ultimate betrayal of Jesus. You will see that Judas very well fit the description that uh, uh, Mr. Murray put in his work, Evangelism Divided. One of the things that, that uh, would plague us as we go back to this, this eagerness to accommodate is, is in our eagerness to accommodate, how, how well do we try to sort through worldly people from those who are committed? Uh, I, I would say that some churches probably believe that they do a very good job of, of trying to identify the worldly from those who are committed. And if they do, then, then, then I applaud them in that. But we also know that there are many people who are worldly people and who are false disciples. And I will, I'll conclude this this afternoon with just this, a couple of just points about false disciples. Uh, there, there are many, many places in the Bible that talk about false disciples. But, the, but uh, when, you, when you talk about the marks of a false disciple, what, what is it about a false disciple that really stands out? Uh, one of those things, as, as uh, John, John MacArthur wrote in his book, a false disciple is one where his, his particular testimony and his particular witness and his particular ministry is all about him. It's, it, it's really all about me. 
Uh, it, it's, it's about prestige. It's about, it's about fame. It's about influence. It's about, uh, uh, well, I, I guess it came to my mind this week as I was thinking about that. It, it's almost akin to uh, what we, we look at almost on a daily basis, and that is all of the stuff that you'll find on the Internet about people who are trying to be famous whether it's on YouTube videos or whether it's TikTok or whether it's on Twitter or whether it's on any of the other mass social medias. It's the selfie generation. It's people who, who want to get their pictures taken in exciting places and post it on Facebook as fast as they can and talk about what is essentially a virtual reality. It may or may not exist, but for them, they're trying to create this virtual reality. And that's what uh, John MacArthur is talking about in his book where he says... These are people, these, these false disciples make their ministry really all about themselves. The second thing that he says is that all of these false disciples really are masters of illusion and deceit. There's a, uh, see what, Second Peter 2.12. Let me finish with, with that particular verse, 2.12. I'm sorry, 222, not 212. And, and as, as I often do, I'll go up a couple of a couple of sentences, a couple of scriptures or, or, or verses above that. Here again, talking about people who are in the church, really are not of the church, but they're in the church, and they are, as John MacArthur, and, and of course, as, as uh, Peter is talking about here. These are people who cause problems within the church because of their own self-centeredness and because of the way in which they uh, relate to not only to their Lord and Savior, but also to others within the church. Verse 20 says, now I'm going to verse 17. I just can't get away from this verse. It says, these people, these are wells without water. They're clouds carried by a tempest for whom it is reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. Uh, these are people, with their, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in terror. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after all they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again enslaved or entangled in them and overcome the latter, the, the, the end is worse for them than the beginning. These same words were said about Judas, talking about the end for Judas was, it would have been better had Judas never known a thing about Jesus Christ. It would have been better for him had he never become a disciple. Verse 21 says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. That's a, that is a, it's a, it's a, it's an awful thing to contemplate. Uh, to think that at, at some point in time, this, this, whatever this red pill might be for any particular individual, that changes your course from being a committed Christian to being a non-committed Christian, uh, that, that whatever it is, it would have been better for you if you had never been a Christian to begin with because your end will be worse than if you had never known. 
one, one commentator on looking at these verses says that, that, that there's a finality here implied by the words they've, they, they've turned their back on Christ they've turned their back on the gospel message which is in verse 21 which would not be true of believers who fall into sin because true believers do not persist in sin 1 John 3, 3 9 says that, that, that they do not 1 Peter 2.25 also says the same thing. You turn back over to 1 Peter 2, the 25th verse. It says, here he's describing committed Christians, believers who have who've gone astray. They've, they've taken a wrong exit at some point in time, but then they find out they're on the wrong road and they redirect their lives back into, uh, so it will comport with what the expectation is as a Christian. It says, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And that, of course, is, is, is the, the end of, of all of those who are uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been preserved in their faith uh, through the maintenance of their spiritual life, uh, who have not turned away, they have not turned their back, they have not betrayed their faith. And so, that's, that, of course, if there's, a, if there's a joy that we can take out of this lesson, it is that. That as Jesus said in, in John 17, 12, is that everyone in his, that the Father has given him, and we all came to Christ as a result of the Father and through the unction of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins and brings us to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we have done that, if it's a true confession, if it's a true repentance, then of course we are preserved in the face until the day of judgment and eternity. We close in prayer. Grace is Father. Again, we praise you uh, for your word truth. Uh, we stand on your truth. Father, we only ask that you would strengthen that truth in us every, every day. Keep us focused on that which you would have us focus on, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let us not focus on those things which, which are detractions in everyday life, uh, which we all we find sometimes very attractive, uh, very alluring. But we ask, O oh Lord, that you keep our eyes directed above unto the one who has provided for our reconciliation, the one who has granted us eternal life in him. In his name.